joining us for the first time this morning. Uh, We're currently working our way through a spring sermon series entitled Light of the Gospel, study of the book of 2 Corinthians. It's arguably uh, the most emotional of Paul's letters. It's not quite as systematic as books like Romans, Ephesians. It's a little more free-flowing, and yet in the midst of the high-level emotion and free-flowingness of the letter, Paul speaks to a number of things that are true of our experience as human beings. He speaks to our struggles with present uncertainty as he glories in God's trustworthiness and the certainty of our future in Jesus. He speaks to our propensity to hide our weaknesses and struggles as he unashamedly declares that God's power is made perfect in weakness. He speaks to the honor and privilege that we've been given as ambassadors for Christ, entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation that's found in him. We'll get to that next week. He speaks to the beauty of radical generosity as an outworking of God's radical generosity toward us in the sending of his son. Talking about a book that, if I could frame it this way, uh, it's highly theological in its expressions of some of the deepest truths in all of Scripture. We'll see some of those this morning. It's a book that's highly doxological in invoking worship and praise of the God that it reveals. And it's a book that's highly practical in helping us to see the appropriate response or responses to God and His work of redemption in our lives. And what that means is that we should come to God's word this morning and every morning to follow as we gather in this place, expecting him to move in our minds, our hearts, and our wills, the head, heart, and hands of Christianity, if I could sum it up, that he might be all the more glorified in us as we find ourselves all the more satisfied in him. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter five. We'll be in the first half of that chapter this morning, the first 10 verses Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can use that Bible during your time with us. You can actually have that Bible if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you do have in your possession is maybe a little bit more difficult to track with. If I can be honest, as you're opening up this morning's passage, um, due to sickness um, pummeling me this past week, you may remember if you were here last Sunday, that there was the beginnings of that. Uh, I was able to devote about half of the time to sermon prep that I'm normally able to devote, and this is some of the highest theology in all of 2 Corinthians that we're gonna dive into this morning. And so I, I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna pray that, that God um, takes the, the sowing of a little and creates a, a bountiful harvest in terms of uh, the fruitfulness in our lives uh, in, in terms of our being in the scriptures this morning. Let's pray. God, what a great opportunity this morning for you to flex, as you love to do, to glorify yourself through human weakness, for you to show that the surpassing power belongs to you and you alone. I'm grateful this morning that you are a God who is capable, and not only capable, but willing to turn five loaves and two fish into more food than was capable of being eaten on a hillside by 5,000 men and their families, that, that you're a God who can create leftovers when we bring insufficiency to the table. And I pray that you would do that this morning for the good of, of all gathered in this place, myself included, as I pray often, I pray that you would give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach this morning. 
let these things not be lost on my own heart. I pray the same thing for, for everyone else in this place, God, that you would move in power by your spirit, that we might walk away encouraged this morning, knowing that we're going to look at some weighty theological realities, the, the glorified body that's to come for us, the resurrection from the dead, treasures in heaven. I pray that we're even encouraged should we walk away with more questions than answers this morning because that says something of the, the weightiness of the glory that is to come. If all of our questions were answered about what the glorified body might look like, then it would perhaps be a little less glorious than the reality that there's mystery. And so I pray, God, that, that we would walk away excited, encouraged even by the mystery that's left on the table this morning, and ultimately that we would be driven to please you with our very lives as an outworking of trust in who you are and what, what you promise us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you've been tracking through the book of 2 Corinthians with us, you'll notice as we dive into this morning's passage that chapter five is a perfect continuation of what the Apostle Paul began to drive at toward the end of chapter four. Having just declared that we carry around the priceless treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, chapter four, verse seven, a metaphor for human frailty, formed out of the dust, to dust we shall return, weak, fragile, momentary, Paul's very own body, living proof, scarred by countless beatings for the sake of the gospel, making it clear that, that the power at work in our lives, the power at work in our ministries, it's owing to God, not to us. The one who, as I said last week, radiantly shines through the cracks and, and fractures to the praise of his glorious grace. The one who promises on the other side of death to raise his people, bringing us into his glorious presence. Going back to the end of chapter four, verse 17, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Paul says. A glory that will someday be revealed in us as God brings the good work that he began in us to completion and a glory that will someday be revealed to us as we who are in Jesus will dwell with God and bask in the presence of his glory forever so that the heaviness of any affliction that we might experience in this world, that heaviness pales in comparison to the weight of the glory to come. Every single affliction, as I said last week, meaningful in preparing us, Paul says, for that very glory, getting us all the more ready to drink from the fountain of everlasting joy. Here in chapter five, Paul continues to, to present that contrast between present affliction and future glory in a passage that has striking similarities to a number of Paul's other writings in the New Testament. He begins in verse one saying, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice right off the bat, the shift in imagery. Whereas the, the human condition was likened in chapter four to a fragile jar of clay, it's now likened to a destructible tent. And, and not only does the imagery change, but Paul now gives us a contrasting image of what's to come. He didn't do that in chapter four. There was no contrast to the jar of clay. Now there is. There's a contrast to the tent. There's a building from God, Paul says. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul likens the, the present mortal body to a tent and the future resurrection body to a building. 
It's not a surprise that Paul would use the imagery of a tent in his argument, being that he was a tent maker by trade. In Paul's day, tents were used while traveling, and they were also used while building permanent homes. Very likely, because of what we know about the theology of the Apostle Paul and his understanding of the history of Israel, that Paul had in mind the contrast here between the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Tabernacle lacked uh, permanency, right? As it traveled with the Israelites throughout the wilderness on their way to the promised land, the temple supplanted the tabernacle as the permanent dwelling place of God in the wake of the Israelites having taken possession of the land of Canaan. Paul uses similar language in his much more thorough treatment of the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, which I would um, commend to you if you do walk away with questions and you want more answers as it pertains to the resurrection body, what's to come. You can go back. We did a series on the prequel, 1 Corinthians, several years back. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 specifically, there are a couple of sermons there that you can go back and listen to and, and get a little bit more thorough treatment as Paul gives more thorough treatment to to what we're gonna talk about this morning there as well. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. He says, so is it with the resurrection of the dead that what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. He says, what, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. The bodies we have right now, we know this, they're mortal, right? They're corruptible. Our bodies are destined for death. But on the other side of death, there will be no more influenza, amen? There will be no more strep throat. There will be no more sinus infections. There will be no more broken bones, there will be no more failing organs of the body. There will be no more cancer. Those are things that have been experienced, everything I just listed within this church family. Our resurrected bodies will someday be imperishable. He says, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. That you and I were born with a sin nature. From our first breath, there's an element of dishonor that, that we all carry. But on the other side of death, no more sin, no more defilement, no more shame, no more dirtiness. Our resurrected bodies will be instruments of unending praise of our worthy God and King. He says, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. The bodies we have right now are weak, lacking strength. But on the other side of death, no more weakness, no more frailty, no more jar of clay imagery. Our resurrected bodies, the Bible tells us, will, and let this blow your mind, reign with Christ in power over all of creation. That's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. He says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, which is not a, a contrasting of the material and the immaterial. After all, we know Jesus's resurrection body was material. Doubting Thomas touched it. Jesus ate fish and digested it in his resurrection body, but rather what Paul's doing here is he's contrasting the natural with the supernatural. We currently have bodies that are suited for this present life only, ill-equipped for the new heaven and the new earth, you might say. But our resurrection bodies will someday be adorned with adjectives that make it suited for eternity, renewed by the Holy Spirit, his power fully at work in us, perfect healing and wholeness, perfect fullness of joy. This is what Paul longed for 
this, this permanent building from God. In fact, he goes on to say in verse two, for in this tent, the present body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. That, that language of groaning and longing, it's the kind of language Paul uses elsewhere in Romans chapter eight, where he says this. He says, beginning in Romans eight, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing, there it is, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In summary, to sum that up, creation longs to be freed from the curse that was pronounced upon it in Genesis 3, transformed and freed from the effects of sin. And so do we. Paul goes on to say, Romans 8, 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have, have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We long for something better, Paul says, the redemption of our bodies, the permanent building from God. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling if, verse three, he says, indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now that's kind of a strange way to talk, right? Probably one of those verses or two that we would run to our study Bibles to make sense of. Like, what is he talking about being naked and unclothed? That's weird. For, for those who, who may be inclined to think that the receiving of the resurrection body comes at death, Paul's making it clear here that there's actually a, a, a waiting period. That, that you don't immediately run and frolic in a way that you might not have been able to because of your brittle bones before you die. That you don't immediately run to your first round of eternal golf. That Paul describes here this waiting period using this language of nakedness, being found unclothed. If you're a Christian, when you die, scripture teaches that your physical body remains on the earth and your soul or spirit goes immediately into the presence of God. That's the good news. Paul will go on to say in, in verse eight, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That to be absent from the body is to be with God. Jesus said himself to the thief on the cross, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And when you die, your physical body remains on the earth and your soul or spirit goes immediately into the presence of God. And then when Jesus returns someday and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died, the bodies of those who have died will be reunited with their souls and will be changed into resurrection bodies. That time between our death and the reuniting of the body and the soul, it's what theologians refer to as the intermediate state. That's Paul's idea of nakedness. The spirit not yet reunited with the body, the spirit unclothed. Paul knows that, that the body and the soul belong together, that their separation is a result of sin and death. He doesn't want to experience that separation. And so he hopes for Jesus's return prior to his dying 
so that he might not experience the soul unclothed, but rather that he might, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 15 again, that he might put on the imperishable, that he might clothe himself with immortality. Or to use his language in this morning's passage, verse four, that mortality might be swallowed up by life. He goes on to say in verse five, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. If you're not encouraged yet, the word guarantee in verse five, it carries with it this idea of earnest money, advance payment, assuring that the rest will be given. In modern Greek, it's the word used for an engagement ring, the promise of the wedding day to come. Going back to 2 Corinthians 1.22, it's God who puts his seal on his people, indicating their belonging to him. It's God who gives his people his spirit in their hearts as a guarantee of the full inheritance to come. And it's not just transactional. He's been talking about this up to this point in this book. It's also experiential in that we know that the spirit is a guarantee by way of his transformative power in our lives. Going back to chapter three, one of the great benefits of the new covenant established in Jesus's blood is the embedding of God's will deep within the hearts of his people by his spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's sanctification. For, he says, this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. In other words, if I could simplify verse five, he's sanctifying us by his spirit now, engagement the assurance that he will glorify us then, wedding. He goes on to say in verse six, so, and this is the the takeaway, similar to last week, we do not lose heart. This week, so, we are always of good courage, confident, no matter the circumstance, trusting, no matter the situation, knowing that God will most surely keep his promises. Going back to chapter one, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that includes the the promise of glory on the other side of the groaning. He goes on to say at the end of verse six, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul doesn't mean that we're without God's presence as we go through life in these mortal bodies. He just said, verse five, we've been given the spirit, the spirit who indwells us. I mean, Jesus expects John chapter 15, that we would abide in him and he in us. Paul can use the language of the hope of glory, Christ in you. And yet, Paul knows that there's a greater experience of God's presence to come on the other side of death. And the future glories of the age to come He says, we presently see those unseen glories with the eyes of faith. But there's coming a day when we will no longer walk by faith, but by sight. and We will see him as he is. We sing it around here. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Until that day, Paul says, we walk by faith. We fight not to lose heart 
in the face of weakness, in the face of suffering, by looking at what we cannot see. A settled confidence that what God promises will, in fact, come to pass because it's always come to pass. Just as sure as he spoke the stars into existence, so his promises are sure. Bound to the pages of scripture so that we're not left to human speculation because we've been given divine revelation. And divine revelation, going back to last week, it declares a future weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that Paul can say, verse eight, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Going back to, to verses three and four, Paul's dream scenario is for Jesus to return prior to his dying, that he might not experience that separation of body and soul, that he might not experience the soul unclothed, but rather he might put on the imperishable. Most of us can understand something of that, right? If we have the choice between death or Jesus coming back, most of us are going, uh, Jesus return please, that'd be great, so that I don't have to experience my last breath on planet earth and know what death is like. But here's where Paul, I think, presses on our thinking a little bit. Because he goes on to say, if that's not possible, Jesus returning before my death, I would prefer to be in the presence of Jesus than to continue in this world, even if it means being stripped of my body. It's the same kind of language that Paul uses in his letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter one, verses 21 through 24. Famous passage, he says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That to use Paul's language in verse eight of this morning's passage, he knows that there's a deeper at-homeness in the presence of Jesus than anything we can know in this world. So that if I could paraphrase Paul's thinking in this morning's passage, it's this. First preference, Paul says, Jesus returns before I die and I get to put on immortality. Second preference, I die and I get to be with Jesus, absent from the body but at home with the Lord until the day that the trumpet sounds and I get to know the joy of reuniting body and soul Third preference, I continue to walk by faith, not by sight, pleasing the one that I so long to be in the presence of, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere I go, to use earlier imagery in the book of 2 Corinthians. So that he says in verse nine, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please Jesus. Again, Philippians one, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. We, we cannot, if I could say it this way, we cannot help but talk about that which we love. And Paul loves Jesus. And, and so as he ponders the possibility of death, he cannot help but talk about the ramifications of his relationship with Jesus in dying. And as he ponders the possibility of living a little longer, he cannot help but talk about the ramifications of his relationship with Jesus in living. He says, whether I live or die, I'm gonna make Jesus look like what he really is, supremely valuable. He says, we make it our aim to please him. And, and that doesn't simply mean for the apostle Paul that his hope is to please him. That word aim, in the original Greek, it means to be ambitious. So that one of the questions for us this morning would be, 
what are your greatest ambitions in life? I mean, if you had to whiteboard that for yourself, just write that out on a whiteboard, in a journal, in a notebook. What are my greatest ambitions in life? What would be listed underneath that? What would be at the top of that list? Paul's zealous ambition was to please Jesus. And no doubt, motivated by who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for the apostle Paul, I mean, he's eternal God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. He's our redeemer who stooped down into the slums of human history to rescue us from our hopeless situation and sin. He's our victory, having overcome our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death through his triumphant resurrection. He's our, he's our hope, his resurrection from the dead, not only establishing the pattern for our resurrection, but making a way for us to bask in the presence of God's all-satisfying glory forever. So I think Paul would be the first to present the question, how could we not make it our ambition to please him in light of who he is and all that he's done for us? And yet Paul gives us all the more reason to please him in this morning's closing verse, verse 10, where he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. On the one hand, Jesus came to live the only perfect, righteous, commandment-keeping life the world has ever known, not a trace of sin to be found in him. His perfect commandment-keeping record credited to rebellious, commandment-breaking sinners like you and me by grace through faith that Jesus came to destroy the power of death through his own death, the sinless one bearing the sins of his people in sacrificial love, so that we who trust in Jesus can stand before him someday, knowing that his bringing of every deed into judgment will not destroy us because he was destroyed on our behalf. So that you have verses like John 5, 24, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Romans 5, 8, and 9, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. That God is willing to justify human beings. He's willing to pronounce them as righteous in his sight, sinners though we may be, but not on the basis of our own merits nor our attempts to explain our sin away, to justify ourselves. Jesus is the only basis of man's acquittal in the cosmic courtroom of the divine, you might say. The only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts chapter four, verse 12. How can guilty sinners have any hope of being declared righteous in God's sight as they stand before him someday? Answer, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. God declares guilty sinners righteous in his sight as a gift of grace, and it's a gift that we receive by faith. So I would ask this morning, do you believe in Jesus? Is he the object of your faith? 
Is he your savior and king? On the one hand, there is no wrath nor condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, Paul says, we Christians will all give account for what we've done in the body, the tent in which we reside, and we'll be rewarded accordingly in the age to come in accordance with our zealous ambition, to use that language of verse nine, to please Jesus in this life. I mean, Jesus himself says it, right? Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at last fall, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, think back on our study of Ecclesiastes for those of you who are around for that, where the author applied his heart in this search for meaning and happiness in the things of this world so that when left to, to ponder the conclusions of his little experiment, he, he declares, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. And, and so will we, if we make it our aim to lay up for ourselves treasures on this earth. We live in a world in which moths and rust destroy, a world in which things fall apart, usually about a month after the warranty runs out. We live in a world in which thieves break in and destroy, a world in which blindsiding circumstances can change everything in an instant, whether we believe that or not. Not so in the storehouse of heaven, Jesus says, for those who lay up treasures in allegiance to his kingdom, zealously ambitious to please him with their lives. And at the same time, and let this be encouragement to us all, there will be absolutely no sadness in the age to come. There will be absolutely no discontentment in the age to come. There will be no greed nor jealousy for those who have less, and there will be no pride nor selfishness for those who have more. If I could sum it up, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says, even though there will be degrees of reward in heaven, the joy of each person will be full and complete for eternity. If we ask how this can be when there are different degrees of reward, it simply shows that our perception of happiness is based on the assumption that happiness depends on what we possess or the status or power that we have. In actuality, however, our true happiness consists of delighting in God and rejoicing in the status and recognition that he has given us. And then he kind of sums up the implications of, of this teaching here in verse 10. He says, it would be morally and spiritually beneficial for us to have a greater consciousness of this clear New Testament teaching on degrees of heavenly reward. Rather than making us competitive with one another, he says, it would cause us to help and encourage one another that we may all increase our heavenly reward for God has an infinite capacity to bring blessing to us all. And we are all members of one another. We would more eagerly heed the admonition of the author of Hebrews who says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of Jesus' coming. He goes on to say, moreover, in our own lives, a heartfelt seeking of future heavenly reward would motivate us to work wholeheartedly for the Lord at whatever task he calls us to whether great or small, paid or unpaid. It would also make us long for his approval rather than for wealth or success. It would motivate us to work at building up the church on the one foundation, Jesus Christ. 
I mean, when you think about the teaching and the life of the Apostle Paul, does that not sound like Paul? Ambitiously devoted to working wholeheartedly for the Lord? Not in order to merit God's love. Paul fully understood the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. But he still had this desire in light of who Jesus is and what he had done for Paul to ambitiously devote his life to working wholeheartedly for the Lord, to pleasing Jesus in this life lived by faith. He was also ambitiously devoted to stirring up others to love and, and good works, encouraging others toward the, the same Christ-exalting ambition, knowing that, that God has infinite capacity to bring unfathomable blessing to all of God's people. And in the end, None of us, none of us will be found wanting because going back to the end of chapter four, God is preparing each and every one of us who are in Christ for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison so that all who are in Christ will drink joy from the fountain of everlasting joy. So that if I could sum it all up this morning, knowing what's to come as Paul unpacks it in this passage our resurrection bodies, mortality swallowed up by life, the day when the faith shall be sight, a deeper at-homeness in the presence of Christ, eternal treasures in heaven, that knowing what's to come, the, the call, the charge, is to be of good courage, knowing that God will most surely keep his promises, to keep trusting him, to keep putting your confidence in him, and in light of your trust and confidence, to make it your ambition, your zealous ambition to please him with all that you have, that he might get the glory and that, that you might get the joy. As I mentioned in the earlier part of this morning's sermon, I think I might have even prayed it, this passage most surely leaves questions on the table. There are other passages of scripture that give more thorough treatment to the various doctrines that Paul begins to scratch the surface of in this morning's passage. But as I prayed earlier, isn't it amazing to think that even the questions that we walk out of this place with show the wonder of what's to come all the more for what it truly is? I mean, if you could exhaustively and comprehensively understand the triune God, I think he would be, be a, a little smaller than what scripture actually reveals him to be, right? If you could somehow box him in and make sense of everything that there is to him, it would be less wondrous to think about what's to come in terms of basking in his glorious presence forever. There's something beautiful about the mystery. Same's true with our resurrection bodies. There's mystery there, and it's glorious that there is because our minds will be blown all the more when Jesus returns and establishes the glorified state for us. Eternal rewards in heaven, there's mystery there. And there's beauty in the fact that there's mystery because again, our minds will be blown by the things that we don't know that God doesn't reveal all the more. And yet there's plenty for us to be encouraged by in this morning's passage to keep us pressing on, to keep us fighting the good fight of faith until the day that the faith shall be made sight.